Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Next time you head to the beach or settle in for a long plane ride, you may not want your imagination filling with images of rogue operatives planting traps or terrorist organizations plotting against unsuspecting victims. You wouldn't want to imagine explosions, assassinations, or 50 caliber rounds ripping through steel. No way. We get enough of these worries from the news. And yet, there is an experience where these things go from worrisome to worry-free, where watching men and women fight for their lives is, yes, fraught and nail-biting, but also a lot of fun. And that experience happens when you're reading a good military thriller. Today, I chat with Matthew Quirk, who's written a great one. It's entitled Cold Barrel Zero, and I'm afraid I can't share with you much of its plot. It's so full of twists and turns, reversals and surprises, that just about any description of it will result in a spoiler. So I'll just ask Quirk to take care of the description for himself. What I can say is that Quirk takes us inside the genre, and he shares with us how a writer goes about mixing cutting-edge military technology, political intrigue, and haunted characters to create a plot with all the velocity of an Apache assault helicopter and all the intelligence of a black ops mission behind enemy lines. One quick thing. About a fourth of the way into the interview, there's some low-level background noise that goes on for a few minutes. Given Matthew's book... I'd like to say it's the result of NSA surveillance or a drone hovering nearby, but I'm afraid it's not that glamorous. However, please don't let an unwelcome and unexpected lawnmower throw you off. It's over soon enough, and odds are you'll be too engaged with Quirk's insights for it to bother you. My apologies. One of the many things I learned from Quirk's thriller is that I certainly don't possess the tech prowess to make it as a military operative. Nope. I'll stick to reading about them on the beach. Matthew Quirk, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thanks for having me. Sure thing. So you've got this new uh, military thriller, Cold Barrel Zero, and it is it is a wild read, and I am very excited to start talking about it. Um, but but there's an interesting background you bring to the writing of these, um, and and I'm kind of curious if you would share with our listeners, you know, what what brought you um, to become a thriller writer. Uh, well, I was a reporter at the Atlantic, and um, I sort of lucked into that job coming out of college, um, and I had been a history and literature major. Um, it was sort of funny because we never got much past World War II. Uh, and that combined with all the English studies is, uh, meant when I got to Washington, I really didn't know anything about contemporary politics or foreign affairs. And the, uh, Atlantic there was this great baptism by fire in those subjects. And, uh, there was a moment I remember I was an intern and the owner was really nice and sort of a, uh, you know, very well connected person around Washington, DC. And he invited me to a dinner at his house. He would have these, old school Washington like salon things 
And uh, I remember there was like a national correspondent there and a former CIA director, and it was in the run-up to the Iraq War, and they were um, discussing whether America should be an imperial power again. And I was like, I'm way in over my head. And uh, the you know story of the next few years was just trying to play catch up, and then reporting and meeting all these people in Washington, and seeing correspondents go off to Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, hearing all the reporting around the office. So uh, it was just this great immersion in a lot of really thrilling subjects. Uh, so, and at the time, I was a junior editor so i would just wrote short stuff for the front of the magazine so it kind of overflowed the little things i was writing for the magazine and i started putting it into fiction and uh you know it took a long time to figure out how that actually worked but uh yeah ultimately it worked out and uh sort of brought me around to these books and i'd always like writing and it combined that with uh some of the foreign affairs and politics stuff i liked uh and picked up at the atlantic it seems to be like you know when you talk about your journey from being, you know, a student of history before World War II and English literature, that that there is suddenly a lot of time in the library, and then there you are in the center of Washington. Um, but one of the the j- demands of the genre seems to be making sure that the technological aspects of the storytelling are are up to date, as well as kind of the political reality that informs the fiction. Um, so it makes me wonder: Are you still just kind of making sure? that you know exactly what's happening or, or are you kind of writing speculatively in the future? You know, in a year when this book comes out, this will be the the view on the ground and these will be the weapons that I think are going to be out there. Uh, that's the fun part. Um, you know, doing the research because I used to, I, I love reporting and, um, and the, the fiction is so fun, especially when you come from a reporting background, because uh, you do get to call people and talk about, you know, classified lockpicking tools and get these sort of government-only uh, security books um, and talk to people who do the work, which is so fun and sort of helps in very intangible ways, too, about how you take it seriously rather than just like this tech item for the book. Um so there's all that, but then, you know, I had a scene where I needed to track people and there was a technology, but it was like 15 years off. And I had spent like four hours looking for whether it actually had been deployed and all these PDFs and DARPA stuff. And they said, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, it's deployed in my book. So, you know, the nice thing about fiction is you can just um, speculate a little bit, uh, but I always find that works best when it comes out of having you know, dug into the research a little bit. And there's, there's an incredible, incredible amount of um, kind of open source information about all this stuff. Uh, so it's really, I'm like a kid in a candy store when I get to start reporting all this. That, that's certainly one of the funds of the read itself, uh, is that there's the sense that you, you, you're coming out smarter about, you know, kind of what's going on in the, in the world of military technology and what's going on uh, in terms of political intrigue. I don't know if, if that's actually the case or it's just an effect of the, the narrative. But, you know, I came out saying, oh, so, so this is how, you know, copper shoots through steel when a bomb goes off. Uh, that's a very interesting bit of information to have. Or uh, when you have to do surgery in the field, these are the very kinds of things you need. And just the, the range of tradecraft that's woven throughout the book is, is kind of stunning. And it's one of the pleasures. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The, um, 
there's a, a thing in the book where a um a I guess at that point he's uh he's a surgeon, uh, you know, accidentally injects himself with a paralytic. And uh that's from a story that just a friend of a friend told me. Um it's I think it's almost like an urban legend <laughs> in uh medicine. Everybody knows a guy who did a residency with a guy who accidentally injected himself with succinylcholine. Um but you know, it's funny the suspense and and what works because I found that, you know, having a massive explosion is always very exciting. But when somebody described that thing of accidentally you know, being on the floor and having your lungs paralyzed and not knowing if you'll, it'll wear off before you start breathing again. It was just such an interesting dynamic. Um, so I guess it's just, you know, it's really interesting to me the scale of what's suspenseful. Um, you know, it could be very big or it could be very kind of personal and face to face. Sure. And so I, I should probably say at the outset, I am determined not to spoil anything about this narrative because it is, it is, the reversals that go throughout it are so much fun. Um, so I'm going to be asking you some genre questions and, and I'll let okay. you chime in. And at some point I'll just ask you to t- tell us the book so that you, you know what you can spoil and what you don't. I thought maybe I shouldn't have read the, the book before the interview. Um, but, but this issue of pacing, right? We, we tend to think of thrillers and, and things like explosions. There are a lot of gunfights. I don't think I'm giving anything away in your sure. piece. Um, so, you know, these seem to be highly visual events, and here you are creating this this textual experience, this reading experience. So how does that change the nature of the way that you think about something like action or pacing or even, you know, creating a thrill, the, the key term of the genre itself? Uh, it's really funny, I think, because um, I think a lot of our imagination of these things comes from um, TV and film which has like a certain strength. Um, and, uh, it's really visual and it's incredibly easy to block out and keep track of things. And, um, for the next book, I just cut out a massive scene that was very elaborate like that. Um, because you know, what I find with the books is that the the most important part is sort of what is at stake for the characters in those action scenes. Uh, if they're just sort of shooting people and that goes on for 25 pages, it gets a little tiresome. Um, it's also a product of the research a little bit. Like most violent encounters are, you know, on the span of seconds and there's not these elaborate um, hand-to-hand combat things where you're quoting back and forth with the bad guy uh so you know it's it's been interesting to to find out what works in the action for a book um and also you know how little you need uh and how to to balance that with making sure people care what's at stake in each scene yeah there's as i was reading the book there was this balance that felt to me between suspense and surprise so at moments you would be waiting to see how how some sort of operation might unfold or, or how some question would get resolved or whether or not some horrible event was going to take place or not take place. Um, and then there would be these moments where you would not have been able to predict what just occurred and then surprise would take over. And so kind of these micro-explosions of narrative pleasure balanced with this sense of, well, what the hell's going to happen? <laughs> 
Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. The, uh, you know, there's a famous Raymond Chandler thing. Um, and his plots are sort of notorious for just taking off in random directions. There's books where he, he himself didn't know who had done certain things. And he said, you know, if you ever don't know what to write next, have like a guy with a gun charge into the room. Um, so yeah, you know, it's fun to keep the surprises, but the hard thing is to, um, have them all mapped out at the beginning. Um, because for me, at least my imagination goes into overdrive and then you can end up in a scenario like, uh, I've heard people talk about that TV show Lost. Like it just kept spinning out all these interesting surprises and possibilities. But then at the end, especially for a book, which is sort of a one-off narrative unit, you know, you have to herd all those cats back together. Um, so it's it's a fun balance between like uh, you know surprising yourself, but also keeping the whole train on track. Sure. So so is there some giant wall in your room that has the narrative mapped out as you work? I wish, and <laughs> I, there's nothing I love more than a good perp wall, you know, on the detective shows sure. and any shows where you have the string and you have the mastermind. Um, and I wish I had the, the writer's version of that, which is the index cards and, you know, the cigarettes and the coffee cups, but it's all on the computer now, um, just because, uh, it's so much easier and, um, I was talking to a friend who was doing her dissertation and she told me she had index cards all over her coffee table and dining room table. And I just, I just wanted to go rescue her and get her on some of the, um, there's some great writing programs. So yeah, it's all on the computer and you move it around. All right. So quick medium, quick digital medium. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite analog thing is that, um, and this you, this goes back to some of the visual stuff too. Um, if you're just sitting at your computer, you could write a scene, and I've I've done this where you know I write a whole scene where somebody is like holding, uh, hanging onto the edge of a building with a gun and a knife, and they're holding the bad guy's collar. <laughs> <laughs> and I give it to a reader, and they say, "Does he have four hands?" You know, um, because and you know those are very early drafts, so. Uh, well, my wife, whenever I'm doing one of these action scenes, I take her and we sort of block out the action. <laughs> um, I had a great fight in a moving van in the last book. And uh, yeah, it's incredibly instructive and you just realize the physics and logistics of it. And I love anything that gets me away from the computer. Yeah, I, w- I was working with a young writer the other day and she had this scene where one of her characters is is sprinting. Uh, and, you know, the the description of it was just... A little bit too pat. It was my lungs were burning. I couldn't catch my breath. And so her assignment was to go out and run a series of uh, 400 meter sprints and then <laughs> write down what it was that she was experiencing. And the, and the description that came back was so much more convincing. Uh, although I, I don't think she forgives me for the homework assignment. <laughs> Nobody expects <laughs> Nobody a expects. gym final during their creative writing class. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, if you'd be so willing as to, to give us a sense of the plot, and I'll take your cue from there as to how we might go into it. Um, and I want to ask you some questions about the opening scene for sure. But, yeah, give us, give us a sense of what this book is about. Well, so the book is about um, two main characters, really. There's uh, one 
guy who was in um, American Special Operations, and uh, he was oh, the spoiler thing is hard. I mean, this was even hard when I was doing the synopsis for the book for the jacket. But he um, returns to the U.S. and um, with a crew of his former teammates conducts sort of a series of of heists essentially and um they almost look like attacks and no one is really sure what he's doing um but it seems like he's trying to get back to his family and uh there's another fellow who is a um now he's a surgeon but he was a combat medic with the um the other character and he gets drawn in and um essentially he needs to figure out whether this um special operations legend is on some sort of campaign of terror or whether he is clearing his name. Um, and that's, that's basically the main action intention of the book. Uh, so it takes place through Southern California and it's these guys on the run, um, being chased by some different, uh, government forces and things. And, um, you know, it's, for a special operations book, I think it also goes pretty deep into their characters and their backstory and, um, you know, some of the, some of the things that haunt them from their past. So it is driven a lot by character and it's, uh, I know I tried to do a little bit more than the normal running and gunning thing. Yeah, I think, I think those characters are definitely the, the main arteries of the entire narrative and, uh, and so I had a question about kind of as, as a writer, when you're constructing these plots, right, there's this demand for at least some sort of technological savviness. So this is my question about the opening scene, right? Um, and when we think about, you know, military surveillance now and military technology, a lot of it is inhuman. Uh, and then, you know, when we're looking for a, a good literary experience, usually we're looking for characters that are at the, the center of that, that we can identify with and enjoy and, and care about as it's moving forward. And so, you know, if anybody had told me, how does one pull off combat with a drone? That would be really tough, I would think. And, and I'm wondering, you know, as, as a writer of these thrillers, as you move forward and, you know, what it means to break into some place seems almost impossible or, you know, what it means to not be surveilled seems almost impossible. How do you, how do you keep narrative momentum going? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because especially after some of the, the Snowden leaks and the portfolio of things that turned out the NSA has, um, people, will sort of rightly believe that anything can be tracked. Like a computer that's not hooked up to the internet can be tracked over radio. Um, so what you have is a set of tools where basically anything is possible, but also, and something I think often gets lost in these books, they're run by these human bureaucracies, um, which are, human and have failings and miss things. I mean, if you look at the recent Brussels attacks, uh, there were so many warnings of those guys and they just, it was miscommunication stuff. So what that does means, uh, what that does is you sort of have a spectrum and the most unbelievable technical thing is possible 
but also they're human characters, so things slip through the cracks. Um, in, in terms of narrative, it's kind of interesting. There's a, a question that always comes up of how do you deal with cell phones? Because there's always some scene where people are shaking the book and throwing it across the room to say, oh, why didn't they just call? Um, and, you know, it's a problem for some people, but I find that the, the narrative um, gets, you can speed it up in a nice way with the technology um, because you can just say, I know where he is. And then you get straight back to that person to person confrontation. Um, so I find it a, a good way to just keep it back on the most intense scenes. And you sort of lose, you know, what some people call like the shoe leather scenes, you know, where Jack Nicholson goes into the, <laughs> into the property records office and he has some banter and then he has to cough while he tears the page out. I love those, you know, but also, um, nowadays you can kind of skip those and the guy has the Bluetooth in his ear and someone's saying, Oh, we tracked his cell phone and he's in the storage unit next to, and then you go right back into the, the face to face confrontation. Yeah, that's definitely where it gets juicy. Uh, so, so when you bring these characters face to face, right, when you have it, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm going out on a limb now, but it seems like the, the thriller world and the black ops world has maybe been traditionally a, a male world, right? Male characters, and uh, you're introducing a couple of key female characters into it, and I'm curious about what tensions or pressures might come out of that. I mean, uh, at least one of them is a pretty tough dame when it comes right down to it. Uh, you know, are these are these just essentially... Men in women's clothing, you know, are, are you writing drag op characters? What's going on there? Well, I mean, this is so funny because um, the, what was that? There was an earlier point I was going to make. You know, the, um, the cast of characters, I, I've been really fortunate in San Diego to have met a lot of uh, Navy people and people who do very cool stuff. Um, and you know, I, uh, talk to some people who do special operations stuff. And then I, I know a, a woman who captains a, I don't know if she's a captain technically, but this ship and she does the, um, called visit board search and sees basically stuff where you send people in and kind of take over a ship. Um, so a, a nice thing is that I, I don't, really think about the the gender and sex of people too much when I'm doing it because um you know it's just sort of cast design it's nice to I think be at a place where you can just have the characters be characters um and the uh you know there's there's tough dames in this um they, you know, they think about their kids, a couple of them. Um, and one of the most interesting things that came out of the research is that the, um, the sort of non-classified special operations community right now, um, which means like SEALs and Rangers and um, some other units are all contending with the um, requirements that women be allowed to uh, qualify for all these different units. But actually, in some of the more classified stuff, um, they've used women on missions for a long time. 
Um, just because if you're doing kind of in denied area stuff, if you send six huge 22 <laughs> year old guys, <laughs> um, they look like if you send somebody who looks like the Duke lacrosse team into the middle of Syria, you're like, oh, uh, we figured out who you are, guys. Um, so, and the Israelis were really pioneering on this. So there actually have been women in these units for, I think, almost 20 years. Um, so that was kind of fun because it's, it's also nice to have a whole palette and to have women and men and to sort of mix it up and not just have, um, like five characters in your, in your crew who are all, so similar. Yeah. But you don't want five characters who are the same character as you move through it. And, uh, that's certainly not the case, including, I guess here's where I'm going to be vague. The bad guys, the bad guys, <laughs> the yes. bad guys. Um, I, I guess, you know, so the way in which you describe Hayes coming back and doing a, a series of heists, um, this is, this is perceived, I don't think this is giving anything away, as kind of the possibility of domestic terrorism, right, on mm-hmm. U.S. soil. Um, so I'll preface this next question with the fact that, that I love this genre, and I think the book is, is a great read, and uh, I've already recommended it to people. Uh, but I was thinking about the kind of question that, like, David Foster Wallace might ask about the genre, like the ethics question, right, about using the content of, of terrorism, um, or, or, or war crimes to, to create a work of entertainment. I mean, is this the kind of thing you wrestle with? Um, or would that have been one of the brilliant essays he might have written? Well, I mean, I'd like to think cause David Foster Wallace was like a TV addict. Yes. And, um, in that, you know, so we came to the end. I can't remember what movie they watched. Oh, Broken Arrow. They go watch Broken Arrow, which is a like really lowest common denominator, Christian Bale, diffuse a nuclear bomb in the American Southwest thriller. Um, he has a great essay on the, the Terminator series. I mean, you know, yeah. so, so, so he was, a, he was an enjoyer. I'd like to think, and this is sort of, cause I, you know, I studied creative writing and I went to Harvard and I did, you know, I read the New Yorker fiction and stuff. So I'd like to think that I would slot in as the, I just watched an awesome popular movie or read an awesome popular genre book and it was it's been a really interesting education to me to realize how much i enjoy that and um how fun it is and how you can do it in a way which is still enjoyable um sort of to everyone but also you can have good writing in that and um like i i've never met anybody who doesn't like the born identity movies um, it's so true. it's really nice to be able to do stories like that. And I probably, if I had, you know, gone and I had applied for MFAs at one point, if I had gone and gotten an MFA, I, instead of going to the Atlantic, um, I don't think I would have ended up doing these. And it turns out to be my favorite thing in the world. Um, the, but, yeah, Oh, you'd be writing your, about your San, San Diego malaise or something like that. Right. And yeah. Bars. yeah. Oh my God. And it turned out cause I wrote all those MFA stories. I was awful at it. I was terrible. And then when I started writing these pe- books, I was sort of surprised because people said, you know, your action scenes are great. And I'm not like a guy walking around, you know, riding a motorcycle and, you know, wearing like a black leather jacket. So I was a little surprised by that. Um, but it's just been sort of a fun evolution. But I don't want to skip your question about um, some of the larger politics and things because I'm very thoughtful about that. And, um, 
You know, there's, there's some things that I tried to do, not that this is like a soapbox book in any way, but, um, you know, I, I made sure that I had a character, a, a bad guy where the politics sort of made sense. So, um, and, and one of the points which comes from a lot of stuff I'd read and people talked about at the Atlantic is, um, one of the points of terrorism is to, uh, elicit a reaction. So, um, and an overreaction and, you know, from the news right now, ISIS, it's, um, sort of apocalyptic vision can't really be completed until Americans or, you know, Western people come and actually invade, uh, that part of the world. So it's a very deliberate strategy to get people to overreact. So what I tried to do in the book was to actually have the, um, outlook on the motivation of people who want to, um, hurt America and, uh, sort of the logic of it be something that at the, where the political lessons from that are, are relevant and accurate rather than just, um, you know, doing something where it might just be like a revenge fantasy or, or people are sort of caricatures of things we've seen before. Yeah, certainly the, the psychological complexity of these characters and their motivation is, is not one in which you think you're going for the latest sensation. Um, yeah, and it's certainly not a soapbox. It's a page turner. Um, but it, it, I do have a question now about the, the narrative technique, given that you talked a little bit about, you know, your other life, the road not taken into MFA world and things like that. It's, it's not every genre book that will fool around with the modernist technique of switching the point of view of storytelling. Um, and it won't give anything away, I think, to say that you move from third to first person, right, in the perspective of how it's being told. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that choice? Well, so um, there is actually a a fairly, it's not uncommon to have a, a first and third person kind of modern thriller. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, and, and I was surprised by that when I did this. Um, and, uh, yeah, for me, it was really that, um, one character, the, the surgeon character had, um, the most, uh, he's kind of haunted the most in a very, um, you know, he's not maudlin or anything, but he's, he's troubled by some things from the past. And it just, it just was the most effective in the first person. And he's the one who it's sort of centered in, um, who should I trust? Uh, so, you know, I tried those a couple different ways and it worked out in first person really well. And it, it might've been a mistake because I think, people sometimes see first person and are like, Oh, this person is the hero. Um, but the book is as much about the, uh, special operations guy who returns home to the United States. Uh, so yeah, it was funny. It was really just about the texture of the scenes of this guy describing his past. When I wrote some of that, it really felt great in first person. Um, and you know, fortunately readers have liked it and, um, uh, one one person hated it, but 
you know, for the most part, it has, uh, I don't think it really gets in the way of anything. And it's, you know, it's actually a nice, if you have two points of view going back and forth, it's, it's a good quick way to signal once you're back in first person that you're with this other character. Yeah, you know exactly where you are as you hit it. Um, and, and I can tell you, you're being very careful to make sure that, that listeners don't think, oh, this is a didactic story or, oh, we've got this modeling character who narrates out of his own voice for half of it. And it certainly isn't. I mean, this is the kind of book where you're like, I've got a long plane ride. I'm going to the beach. I just need a weekend to sit back and, you know, drink some beer and have a good time. And I think that, that readers are going to be just in, have, having, I, I was about to say thrilled, but it just seemed, sounded too corny. Um, but but given that there is this highly entertaining nature to this book that you've written, that you're wanting to find out what happens, it seems to me like it's the kind of thing that might be ripe for for a movie. Um, have you have you heard from Hollywood? Uh, on this one, with nothing um, concrete, but uh, I got a few emails, and I have a guy who. Um lives up in LA and lives and breathes this stuff. So, um, I sent them his way. So I, yeah, I hope so. Um, it's, uh, writing, writing novels is um, my favorite thing to do in the world. And it's also a great job. And the way you, um, sometimes interact with, uh, TV and film is a really nice setup. I had, um, an option deal for my first book with Fox and, it's great because, you know, I don't think, I don't know if any writers are treated as well as the, um, it's, it's really great to do these, these books because you're just off on your own for a year and you're the boss and, um, you can just kind of go off. It's a lot of pressure, but, um, I just go off and I bring it back a year later which always surprised me. It's the strangest job. And I say, you know, would you like to see an outline or, you know, go over it? And they're like, oh, okay. But really it's just, you're off on your own. Um, and, uh, and then the nice thing about the TV and film stuff is people just come by and it might get a second life and a retelling. And, um, it's really exciting. And even when you go to like a literary conference, people want to know about all the, um, books that are now have TV and movies, but, uh, it's nice because you're not, uh, you're not spending your whole day in LA going to meetings and driving through traffic or like in a writer's room, um, you know, with 20 other people for 14 hours a day eating, like eating takeout. Um, so the, the Hollywood stuff is, is really exciting and it, it dovetails really nicely with, um, the, writing of the um the the, kind of the day-to-day writing which is my favorite thing where i just go uh hide in my office or take a hour-long brainstorming walk um and it's very sort of solitary except when you decide to have yourself kidnapped and then dropped off in the middle of la to find your way through that's yeah that's the thing Um, (laughs) tell us about that thing well, yeah, that's the thing. So it's it's a funny lifestyle because once a year you come out and you sort of rub your eyes and you look at the sun, and um, and you have to go back into sort of action mode. Um, so you know, for this book, I um 
did some training that uh, a company does and uh, a fellow named Kevin Reeve does with um, civilians and also he trains military personnel. Um, and the name for it is essentially urban escape and evasion. Um, and um, es- escape and evasion is a sort of broad char- category of a kind of military training, but it's usually if you're an airman and you've, um, you're down behind enemy lines and you need to get out of the woods um, or you've been your POW and you want to um, get through that as unscathed as you can be. And this guy does training um, more for if that were to happen in an urban area, which um, in the way he was describing it, isn't taught all that much in the military. Although I know some guys in different um, areas who have done similar exercises uh, with the military. But, you know, the idea is that um, he takes you for a couple days and you learn how to do all this great spy game stuff, like pick out of handcuffs and flex cuffs and um, pick locks and, uh, you know, improvise weapons and do disguises and hide caches and um, do social engineering, which is basically con games and stuff like that. And uh, so it's a, it's a class for two days, but you know at the end of the two days there's a field exercise where you're going to be handcuffed, um, kind of stun-gunned a little bit, uh, and then uh, there's mock kidnapping, and then you have to escape. We have to pick our way out of the handcuffs. And then you have to use all those skills while um, the guy running the course and a couple of his... Um, of the people he works with, some of them were Marine and special forces veterans chase you around LA. Um, so it was a really incredibly educational. I learned a ton of stuff and there was a lot of technical material, but there was this really simple point that sometimes I forget when I'm sitting at my keyboard or walking around brainstorming, which is like what it feels like to be absolutely terrified and stressed out and on the run um, and that really informed the book kind of at a deeper level. Uh, so it was, uh, it, it was a very, it was a great class and, uh, you know, periodically you need to break up these, these long bouts of, uh, you know, monastic <laughs> writing and being in your own head with getting out in the real world and sort of getting a, uh, a taste of, you know, the, the experience, what the experiences you're writing about would really be like. And and given that you took this class, you know, as as research for the book, is is getting quasi stunned something that you're now writing off on your taxes? This how did this work? So this, I mean, the class was uh, the class wasn't inexpensive, so I wrote it up for a magazine, and basically the um, the the magazine fee covered the class and then, you know, getting up to LA. Uh, but this is, I've, I've always loved reporting and, um, and still do a lot of reporting for the books because, uh, of this getting to have a foot in both worlds thing. I love going off by myself and writing. And then I also love an excuse or being forced to go, do something exciting and get out there. Um, and I always loved reporting because it was your job and you had to go 
stick your nose in someplace and go to where the exciting stuff was. Uh, so I've been really happy with the books that I still get to do that. You know, um, it's, it, there's nothing better than something crazy is going on and you show up and you say, Oh, I'm a reporter. And that's not really an official anything, you know, it's like a private job. And they're like, Oh, okay. You have a right to ask us questions and be here. So I've always sort of loved that license to, um, kind of stick your nose in and get close to these experiences. Well, now you can show up and say, I'm a novelist. I'm a, no- <laughs> I'm a novelist and I'm here. <laughs> oh, thank God. The novelist is here. Okay. Start take the a year to write a book about it. That's right. Transform. Well, I even recognize myself. Yeah. Well, you can channel our humanity for us. We really <laughs> needed that. There's a cat in a tree. Start the press conference. Yes, we can begin now. Well, where are, where are you in that process now? Is there another book in the pipeline? Are you working on something new? Yeah, there is another book. It's, um, a sequel and, uh, it's it's similar in theme dimension. It's um, I haven't talked about it too much, so let me think for a sec. Yeah, it's um, it's the the special operations guy, um, John Hayes, is, appears in the second book, and um, yeah, the setup, which is a, a real thing, and this this came out in the news, is um, what if uh, enemies of the United States started targeting some of our um, special operations personnel at home. And, um, you know, because it's, there's, I mean, we've been at war for like 15 years. And um, one of the interesting things that I think a lot about is that, uh, you know, the war and conflict with some, with some like important exceptions, we don't often feel at home. Thank God. Um, and one of the things with these thrillers you can do is sort of, um, or try to do is to take some of these conflicts that are happening around the world, which seem so far and make them relatable, um, and bring them, into these situations and find ways to have them happen sort of in recognizable locations like the United States. Um, and I think that's something people enjoy from these novels that, you know, it's, it is rooted in the reality of what different conflicts are like, but also it, you know, they can relate to it as a human level. So I'm kind of looking for plots that do that. Well, so let me ask you one more question about how you register whether or not that's working. I mean, what are the things about the thriller that has this somatic emotional experience in its genre title, right? Is that you're expecting a certain kind of feeling out of reading the narrative. I mean, horror shares that, you know, when you're reading a, a, a genre horror piece, you want to feel scared. Uh, when you're reading humor writing, you hope to, to laugh, um, you know, I, I think uh, Dickens used to love to read certain passages out loud because he would have people we- weeping. So he knew that the, the kind of sentimental experience was actually happening. Uh, how do you produce a thrill? Like, how do you know, oh, I've got it? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I mean, obviously, certain situations you can put a check mark on and say, oh, yeah, that's much more thrilling than, you know renewing your car registration. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's sort of a funny, um, world and, you know, it's, uh, you just sort of walk through and kind of imagine the most exciting things. And, um, you know, there's an element to all of these of, uh, that, you know, it's very primal stuff and, you know, what would you do to protect what you love and, um, you know, imagining and identifying with people, you know, who are strong, um, not bullies, but just like strong and, and do good. Um, and so you just sort of put yourself in that mindset and it's, it's really an interesting, um, world because I find that it, um, it's a really interesting kind of moral universe because it is, uh, it's very elemental and a lot of the, the big TV at least and the prestige shows have been about like really flawed, um, somewhat reprehensible people, depending on how you look at them, you know, starting with the Sopranos and you have all these flawed main characters, but, um, what I find with the thrillers and it's, it's really sort of an enjoyable world to be in, um, is it's, it's a much more traditional moral universe and you have, you know, somebody who has very honorable reasons, um, to put themselves in harm's way and make a sacrifice. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a nice world to be in to imagine yourself as, you know, what would you do to protect these innocent people and, uh, you know, make sure justice is restored. It's, um, it, it's a nice world to be in. And, you know, it's, uh, I think that's pe- why people respond to it. It is a world where the, where the virtues are still alive, where you have things like honor and courage and friendship and sacrifice. And, uh, and it makes it a nice world to be in as a reader. I hope when you, this next one comes to life, you'll come back and talk to us about it. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. All right. Matthew Quirk, thanks for being on the New Books Network. Oh, thanks for having me. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Matthew Quirk, author of Cold Barrel Zero on the New Books Network.